Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. In preparation for those occasions and for where we are going and what we're doing this, this fall as we continue to build on our ministry, I wanted to draw attention to this passage because it is very critical that as we move forward, we do so together. That's what this passage is about. We need to be unified. We need to be a congregation that's coming together in order to move forward with the good news. Now, So I want to challenge us with respect to what the writer tells us here in chapter 10. Let me read these verses uh, to you. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Yeshua, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a passage about the one anotherness of the congregation. If we were to ask the writer, the congregation of believers, what are they to be characterized by? I think he would say something like, the congregation of believers is to be characterized by a one anotherness, characterized by an interdependency, an interconnectedness. That the body of Messiah ought to be characterized by a spirit of mutuality. Where there is a desire to mutually benefit one another, bless one another, encourage one another, and lead each other on in the things of God. I think that's what the writer would tell us if we were to ask him. As you look out upon your congregation. Now remember, this is being written to Jewish people. And this is being written primarily, though not exclusively, to Jews in Jerusalem. Remember, the issue is the destruction of the temple. We haven't gone through the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Some of the things I'm saying may be new to you. But the destruction of the temple is very soon upon them. This book is written about 66, 65. So in 70 AD, the, the, the temple and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The Jewish people are going to be scattered. And those in Jerusalem particularly are going to be hit hardest. 
And these are people under duress. They're people under persecution. They're people who are struggling. They're people in poverty. And so if there's anything that the congregation ought to be characterized by, it ought to be a coming together so as to mutually benefit one another. And when you read this passage, very interesting, and let me point this out to you, take note of all the first-person plural references that are made here. Let me read the verse again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. Look at verse 20, uh, verse 20. By the new living way that he opened for us. Look at verse 21. We have a great high priest over the entire house of God. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confidence of our hope. And let us consider how to stir one another on to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another and all the more. This one another, you'll notice, comes up twice. Verse 24 and in verse 25. You'll notice also he speaks about meeting together. This is a very interesting word. It's episynagoge. We get the word synagogue from this. It means to meet together, to join together, to be connected together, to be, uh, you know, living life together in close proximity, touching one another, in concourse with one another. You know, this word, episynagogue, it only occurs one other place. You can check it out if you like. But it's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, where it talks about when Messiah comes, we will meet him in the air together. So we'll meet him together. Presently, until we meet him together, we are to be in service, in ministry, in mutual support together as we go through life together. By the way, that title, I love that title, don't you? Through Life Together. That's the title of a Bob Dylan album. I can't take credit for the, for the phrase. But Through Life Together. You know, I, I just like the idea because we are all going through life and none of us is meant to go through it alone. Remember what happened in Genesis, right? When God creates man, he says, it is not good for the man to be what? Alone. So what did he have to be? He had to be together with someone. And you know as well as I do how hard life is alone. Now, fortunately for me, I don't think I've spent much of my life alone. You know, growing up in a home where my parents were present, I was with my family. I was married when I was 20. And my wife and I, we've been together 42 years. And we've been together, you know. So I try to think, when have I been alone? There was a year, year and a half when my father had asked me to leave the house because I had become a believer. And I had lived in a boarding house, a room. I was 17, 18 years old. And you'd go up the stairs, and there was the door. That was my room. I had no idea who else lived in this house. They could have been serial killers for all I know. I had no idea who was in this house. But I remember thinking about that. I remember my son wanting to go out to Calgary to play with the Calgary Raiders when he was playing lacrosse with the Canadians. And he was so determined. I said, how are you going to get out to Calgary? That's 3,000 miles away. This was like his sophomore year of college or something like that. I said, how are you going to go out there? Because I'm not paying for this. I didn't want him to go. I was scared to death him being 3,000 miles away and in another country. 
a distant country of Canada, you know. <laughs> and so I said, how are you going to get there? He said, I'm going to take a bus. I said, okay. So I drove him up to Baltimore, and we were living in Maryland at the time. He got on the bus, and I, the last words I gave to him, well, they weren't the last words. He lived through this, but the words I gave to him were, now I just want you to remember one thing. Did you ever see that show, uh, Wanted? I said, those characters, they're found on these buses. <laughs> you know? So don't talk to anyone. Just get on the bus and get off at Calgary. Well, nine hours later, I get a call from him, and he's at the Canadian border. I dropped him off at 9 o'clock. It was 9 o'clock at night. And he calls me, and he said, Dad, I'm on my way home. I said, I'm on your way home. What happened? And he said, I got to the border, and the guards there or the... the uh, I don't know what you call him, the, with his passport or whatever he needed. When he gets there, they said, how long are you going to stay here in Canada? He said, oh, during the summer. And, and how are you going to live here? I mean, how are you going to pay for things? And he said, well, um, I'm going to get a job. And, he, and the guard said, uh, do you have a green card? And he said, my son said, no, where do you get one? And, <laughs> And the, the customs guard, customs guy, he turned around and said, you see that sign that says, Welcome to America? That's where you get it. <laughs> so he called me up and he said, I'll have a green card. I'll be home. So about nine hours later, he's back in Baltimore. <laughs> anyway, I, t- I, I tell you that story. I'm not even sure why I tell that story. I think about it. But nevertheless, I, you know... I don't remember being alone. My son has spent a good deal of time alone. He's had roommates and all. But for me, I don't remember spending much time just in that one room with who, who knows what. People from America's Most Wanted may have been in that home. I don't know. But I never had any problems, never any issues. And God sustained me. And then shortly thereafter, we married, and I was connected. And you know as well as I do that connected life is a lot easier than an isolated life. You know that a connected life not only is easier, it's a whole lot more fun, isn't it? You know? Did you ever go to a ball game by yourself? You know, you're watching the Dodgers. I mean, for me, it's the Red Sox. But whoever is your team, and it's like, it's so lonely. You've got like tens of thousands of people. You're cheering them on, but you can't like nudge the guy and say, hey, did you see that? The guy says, who are you? You know, you can't do that. And so life is a whole lot more fun when you're connected. Life is a whole, whole lot more pleasant when you're connected. Life is a whole lot more successful when you're connected. You know, you need the encouragement to put the foot forward when it seems like I can't go another step. The writer to the Hebrews is telling us that life is meant to be lived together in the body. Paul makes the same point, doesn't he? He says there's one body with many members. We're all members, and one member can't say to another, hey, listen, I'm more important than you. I'm more necessary than you. We all need each other. Where would the hand be without the arm? Where would the foot be without the leg? Where would the whatever part be without the other parts? And so the writer is telling us, look, in light of all the things I have told you thus far, And all the things that he's told us thus far in chapters 1 through 9 is how superior Messiah is. 
And with respect to his superiority and all that he has done for us. Well, now this is how I want you guys to live your life. In light of all that he is, he's superior to the prophets. He fulfills what the prophets have said. It made me think, you know, Yeshua says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. You remember how often that he said, I came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He's greater than the prophets. The prophets anticipated his coming, but he's the coming. The prophets spoke of his coming, but he's the fulfillment. And he's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. How incredible the angelic world is. He's greater still. They were the mediators of the law, according to both Paul in the book of Galatians. And also the writer to the Hebrews will tell us they, the angels mediated the law. But Messiah is the embodiment of the law itself, which he fulfills. The angels are guardians to those who know the Lord, that, and they bring the believer to a place of rest and repose in the presence of the Lord. But yet our Messiah is greater because he's the provision by which they can do that. Not only is he greater than the angels, the writer tells us, but he's greater than Moses. The one who is the deliverer or the deliverer of Israel and the giver of the law. He's greater than Moses. That's why Moses said, you are to keep your eyes open for the prophet who will be like me. And when he says like me, what does he mean? Well, Moses was the only prophet that God said, I do not speak to Moses in dreams and visions. I speak to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was spoken to intimately, directly by God. And thus the prophet like Moses would have that intimate, direct connection with God that no other prophet is said to have had. And as great as Moses was and is, greater still is our Messiah. And as great as our high priest Aaron was, And as significant as the Levitical priesthood and law is, our Messiah is greater still. He's not merely our high priest. He is our great high priest. And he's not merely our great high priest. He's our great sacrificial high priest. He's both our sacrifice and our priest. He's both the atonement and the mediation by which we can stand in the presence of God. He's greater yet. And that being the case, he says, now this is how you ought to live your life in community, touching the lives of one another, interconnectedness, mutuality, respectfulness, and a working together. If Beth Ariel is going to be what I believe and what all of us believe Beth Ariel can be and should be. It's going to start with us who are here presently and how we deal with one another. The writer to the Hebrews is very much concerned about this. And so look what he tells us. Basically, there are three things. And this is kind of a cool thing, too. Because you know in Scripture, the three critical virtues are faith, hope, and love. Right? Those are the three critical virtues. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter... At the very end, these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You remember what Paul writes to the Thessalonians? He remembers their work of faith, their labor 
of love, their steadfastness of hope, he tells them. And now if you look carefully at the writer to the Hebrews, look what he talks about. He talks about, first of all, in, in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of what? Faith. He then tells us, look at verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Look at verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another on to love. There's our faith, hope, and love again. The three critical virtues reappear here. And that those become the three exhortations, the three challenges that the writer wants to throw out to us. He says, let us draw near. Let us stir one another on to love. And let us have full assurance of hope. How do we do that? So take a look at this. Verse 22. Uh, excuse me, verse 21. We have a great high priest. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. When he says to let us draw near, the Greek word here, by the way, found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, written by some 70 Jewish rabbis, they use this word in Leviticus chapter 8 and Exodus chapter 9 to speak of worship. So when he says that we are to draw near, let us draw near, he's talking about how we in community, if we're going to draw near to God, we can draw near to God best together and not in isolation from one another. For sure, we can all go into our closets and we can pray. For sure, we can all go walk our dogs, that's my style, and we can pray. We all can get behind our desk and in our chair, close the door and study the Word. But what the writer is telling us is the greatest way we can worship, the greatest way we can draw near to God is in community with one another. It stands to reason. Think about this. If it was just me here celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, it's like having a cracker and juice. It lacks the significance because it's just me and it. But with all of us now, it takes on a vitality. It takes on a unity. It takes on a corporateness of, of style and of reflection. And it makes me think of the significance of who we are as the body of Messiah. In other words, it's not just me and God. And indeed, I can go to God solo. And we're invited to do that. But worship is so much greater when it's in community. Have you ever gone to one of these harvest crusades? Or what's his name that was at the Colosseum, Engel, whatever. And you've got 80-something thousand people. I remember years ago when I was on the mall in D.C. with Promise Keepers. There's like a million-plus people going from the Capitol all the way down to uh, the uh, Lincoln Memorial. And they had to set up all these giant screens because you can't see that far. And there's a whole bunch of men Imagine that, a million men hanging out on, on the mall, and it's safe, <laughs> you know, it's all right, it's okay. And we're all there on the mall, and they're singing, men singing, right? Men holding up their hands, lifting their voices together, reaching out to one another, praying for one another, you know? When there's like a million people gathered together, tens of thousands, or a hundred, or fifty Worship's a lot better than when you're just soloing it and seeking to speak to God. How can the gifts of the Spirit manifest themselves when we're just alone in our closet? 
None of us have all the gifts. We need one another if the gifts of the Spirit are going to be manifested in our midst so that we hear from the Spirit of God and we minister and serve one another. Let us draw near to God. And when he talks about drawing near to God, he tells us we need to do this with a sincere heart, a heart of devotion. Remember what Yeshua said, that we, the day is coming when we will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. A heart of sincerity, a heart of devotion. What God wants is not our prayers. He wants us. Let us draw near. He wants us to come into his presence. He wants all of us. That's why we recite the Shema, to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants all of us. He takes delight when his people are worshiping him and praising him and we're with him. Not seeking merely to get or even to give, but just to be there with him as we worship him together as one body singing the Lord's praises. Imagine if, you know, when you've got the music like this morning. It's just wonderful to hear the music. We need one another. It's wonderful to see the dance. You know, you go into most churches, most places, they don't do that. That's unique, isn't it unique? It's unique. And it draws our attention to the variety of ways in which we could glorify God and worship Him. So worship is significantly in more, it's just more significant when we are together. But to do that, we have to have sincere hearts. To do that, we have to have loving hearts. And so he says, draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. What he's talking about is full assurance of the salvation we have in Messiah. It all comes back to him. Remember that. Full assurance of faith, what he has done for us. And that's why he goes on to say in verse, in verse 20, uh, 23, let us hold, or he goes on to say in verse 22, that we're to have this full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed pure. What he's talking about is salvation in and out. He's talking, he's using these Levitical terms, these priestly terms, that when the priests would serve, they had to go through a certain ritualistic process of washing and cleansing. So when he talks about our hearts being washed from a, and having a clear conscience, he means having the work of Messiah applied to our hearts, whereby we're forgiven of our sin and the guilt is removed. And thus we have a clean conscience doesn't mean we don't do things wrong. It means that when we do things wrong, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so having full assurance of faith in Messiah, what he's done for us, he's cleansed our hearts and he's enabled us to stand right with God. And thus he's saying, come together as a body, worshiping me, worshiping the Lord And doing that in full assurance of what Messiah has provided for us. Do you have that sense of assurance that your sin is forgiven? Do you really have a sense that I no longer am being held accountable for my misdeeds? Because of what God has done for me. I don't mean to say that there's no reason to confess to one another. Sometimes we overstep the line with each other. We need to ask for each other's forgiveness, and that for sure. But ultimately, all such misdeeds are against him. They're directed against him. And therefore, we need 
to know that our hearts are cleansed. We no longer have a guilty conscience, but we've been released and we've been forgiven. And that our bodies would be washed. He's talking about our actions now. So that what we do is a reflection of what has gone on before in our hearts. And because our hearts are clean, our actions can be right. And so he says we need one another in order to draw near to the Lord. To come into his presence and to worship him as we ought. But look at the second thing he says. He also tells us in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Have any of you seen the movie um, Master and Commander? Nobody's into the... <laughs> there you go. Hands up. You know. Well, if you've never seen the movie... That ought, to be, you know, that ought to be in the list here of things we ought to do. Somewhere in the Bible, there should be a, a thing that says, Master and Commander, you need to see that. Actually, I had opportunity to read through the O'Brien series. Oh, my goodness, that took me like 20 years. But that movie is an incredible, it's just an incredibly well-done movie. If you're into sailing... It's got all the right nomenclature. It's got all the right stuff about sailing. Of course, being into sailing, I was drawn to the book, uh, to the book and as well as the movie. But in the movie, there's a great scene. There's a lot of great scenes. But in the very beginning, when everything's going crazy, you know, because the French ship is about to unload uh, and fire its cannons on this smaller British vessel, vessel that uh, Russell Crowe is the commander of. And everybody's running, right? The bells are going off, and everybody's got to get to their post. The Marines are going up the, up the mass, and they're getting ready with their guns to fire down on the enemy ship. And the other guys are manning their cannons. Some of the guys are by the wheel. Some of the guys are getting ready to deal with the sails. Everybody's got the right place to be. You see this one scene where these guys below, they're coming running out, and you, hear, you see them tip over a uh, sundial, you know, which is also cut, not a sundial, a sand uh, hourglass, right? It's real interesting how they tried to keep time. That's a whole other story. But at this one point, there's a young midshipman. In those days, you know, 10, 12 years old, they sent people out. Uh, the wealthier class, the aristocrats, would send their sons to become midshipmen and officers in the British Navy. So you got these young kids. They're 9, 10, 11 years old. They're right in the midst of this battle. And one of these kids goes running to the stairs. He wants to hide, you know, and he's get, gotten scared. And there's this old salt. He's hardly got any teeth left. You know, he's all gray. And he's been serving on his vessel probably for a long, long time. He takes his hands and he makes these two fists, you know? And on his, on his uh, fingers, he has tattooed, hold fast, <laughs> you know? Just hold fast. And it, you know, it just makes you think when you go through times of duress like that, times of trial, of great fear, there's nothing much, you can't jump overboard, there's nothing you can do. You've got to dig deep, hold fast, and persevere. So what does he tell us here? He says to us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So what is that hope? That hope is one day Messiah is coming. Now he's paid the price for our sin, but one day he is coming. Hold on, hold fast, don't waver, 
Don't give up on what Messiah has begun in you because what he's begun in you as well as in me, he will bring to completion in the day of Messiah. He's coming again. Hang in there. Times are tough. Trials are severe. Things are significant and they are critical and they are hard. But he says, hold fast. But look at this. He says, let us hold fast the hope we have without wavering. It is so much easier to hold on to hope when you've got it with other people, isn't it? I mean, I'm telling you, when you're left to yourself and you're sort of imagining the worst possible scenario that could occur. It always happens that way, right? When things are going bad and you're left to yourself, we don't think about, oh, this is going to end tomorrow. We think about, this is going to go on for the rest of my life. But when we're with others and other person puts their arm around you, just nudges you, just says, hey, you remember when? Hey, and I'm here with you, man. Call me anytime. I'm here with you. I'm ready to go through this with you. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, we can do this. We can do this. Because community is that critical. Now remember, these guys are going through some very challenging things. They're poor. They don't have the financial resources. They're Jewish believers that are living in a predominantly, an area that's predominantly made up of Jewish people who do not believe. They're ostracizing them. They're speaking out against them. As we look in the book of Acts, some of them are being imprisoned. And they're going through some very hard times. And if this, as it is written around 66, they're looking out, the Romans are on the move, and Jerusalem may be going down. And when it goes down, we're going off into dispersion. How can we hold on? What is going on? What is God up to in all of this? It is so much easier to go through those things and persevere without wavering when we do it together than when we do it by ourselves solo. And so the writer to the Hebrews is telling us, let us, let us, and and how does he put it? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And the reason is the one who promised is faithful. God never, ever fails to come through on his promises. He never, ever, he is not a man that he would lie. He always comes through on his promises. If he tells us, by embracing me, you have forgiveness of sins, he always comes through on his promises. He'll forgive you of your sin. God has promised that wherever two or more are gathered, there I am in your midst. He always comes through on his promises. He will be there with us in our midst. He promises that I will never leave you nor forsake you. He always comes through on his promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us. It may be that we don't always feel him or sense his presence, but remember, we are one that are to pursue the assurance of our faith, not our feelings, not what we see, but believing even in that which we cannot see because the one who has promised is faithful and will never be. Leave us astray. Hope is stronger in community than it is in isolation. We all know that, right? And then when we come to this third, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This word, stir up, is really interesting. It's the word that means to instigate. You know, so it's really a negative kind of word. 
It's a word that like to incite, you know. And he's saying, so let us incite something good in us. How often do we irritate one another? And we incite the worst in us. And we oftentimes react the way we would prefer not to because we sort of bring out the worst in us. The writer is telling us, look, be devoted to stir up and to cause the best to come out in one another. Stir up to love and good works. Stir up good works that flow out of a loving heart. And so be one that is sort of instigating the best in one another. That, he says, is best in community, in fellowship. So if we as Beth Ariel are going to move forward, if we're going to have the kind of impact we want to have on the Jewish people, particularly who do not know Messiah, and we've got the high holy days coming up, it's one thing to be able to speak with them, but it's another thing for them to see something that they could not otherwise see in their own life experience. We want them to see a body of people who stir up love and good deeds, right? We want to see a body of people that stir up and encourage hope in the hardest of places. Not merely a people that every time something goes wrong, they find a way to escape. But rather, this is a people that have found a way to hold fast and to endure. We want them to see a people who draw near to God together. This is a worshiping body, not just one here, two there, three here. This is a body that comes together to worship and praise and to glorify his name. If people see that, they will crave the one who causes it because he's the one and only he can make this happen in our midst or in any place. So he concludes by saying, so therefore don't neglect to meet together because it's in the community that the drawing near is going to be best. It's in the community that the strengthening of hope is going to be best. It's in the community that faith is going to rise to a crescendo. And that's why our life groups, I think, are so critical because lives need to touch if there's going to be mutual benefit to one another. We can't just come on a Shabbat and we go to our own places and there's no interaction, there's no connection, there's no mutuality. We can do much here when we gather as a congregation. But we also need to be touching each other's lives out there, whether it's in the small group or in workplaces or in things that we do just to enjoy one another's presence. Now, why is this all possible? Well, look at verse 19. It all comes back to this. I left it for the end, but he draws our attention to it at the front end. He says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Messiah. See, that's the reason why this can occur. Not because we're strong enough, not because we're determined enough, and not because we see the, the need and the justification for such. We can do this only because the blood of Messiah has been shed for our sin because Messiah has completed the work. Look what he says. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Messiah. 
You know what's really neat about this? What the writer is saying is what Aaron, the high priest, and all high priests after him had the privilege to do one day a year, we have the privilege to do all the time. We have immediate access, not just to the earthly temple, but the heavenly temple. Not just the earthly holy of holies, but the heavenly holy of holies. We have access, and not only do we have access, but he says we have confidence to go. Not just confidence, but the word here is boldness. We can go, not pridefulness, not arrogance, but with boldness because of what Messiah has done for us. We are, as it were, little high priests. And we can go right into the very holy of holies, into the very presence of God, because of what Messiah has done for us. We're told that this is because this is a new and living way. That means to say it's a new way because of what Messiah has just inaugurated. It's a living way because it provides us with personal access and relationship with God. It's open through the curtain that is through his flesh. What an interesting phrase. The writer likens Messiah's body to the veil in the temple. And just as the veil in the temple that kept everyone out from the holy of holies, think about this, as long as Messiah remained in his body without his body being torn, we did not have access into the very presence of God. It's only after his body was broken, torn, wounded, only after his body was given up as a sacrifice, like the temp- the curtain in the temple was torn that provided access into the presence of God. So because Messiah was torn, as it were, we now have full access into the presence of God. Individually, for sure, but now we all can go together at the same time. It must be a big holy of holies. (laughs) But we can all go in at the same time together And that's what Messiah would want of us. He wants us to gather, like in the book of Revelation, where you had myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands upon thousands gathered around the throne of God singing his praises. We are to enter into the inner sanctuary of the Lord, the very holy of holies, to give him praise, to worship him, and to adore him. We are to do this together As one body, we are to live life together in every facet, in every way that we can. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we pray that you would grant us grace by your Spirit, Father, to be the kind of body you would have us to be. Lord, your body was torn So that ours need not be torn, but rather we can come into your presence healed of all of our needs. Father, we praise you. Your son on the cross was forsaken, that we might not be forsaken, but that we would be embraced and that we would be accepted by you. So our prayer, Lord, is as we go through life, we would go through life together. As we go through our faith, we would go through faith together. 
Father, we pray that you would help us draw near to you as one body. Help us, Lord, to stir up one another to good deeds and love. Help us, Father, to encourage one another in hope and to strengthen one another in faith. May may we be a blessing to you in this, we pray. And may you be an empowerment to us by your Spirit to do this, we ask. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.